Every church has its liturgy and Easter traditions, and uh, we have Johnny Cash. So that's, that's how we roll <laughs> at Mosaic. Well, it is good to see you, Mosaic. It is good to have you with us. Whether you have been here since day one or whether this is your day one, we're pumped to be with you today. And for me, this is my favorite day of the year. And not just because it's my birthday, which it is. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. I think I get pastoral bonus points or something. Uh, with my birthday being on Easter, but it is Easter is my favorite day of the year, and I'm going to tell you why, uh, but before I do, I want to share a story with you. Ken Davis uh, shares a story about a woman who one day looked outside of her window and to her horror saw her German shepherd shaking the life out of her neighbor's rabbit. They did not have a particularly good relationship with these neighbors, and so it had disaster written all over it. So she rushed outside, grabbed a broom, pummeled the dog until it dropped the now extremely dead rabbit out of its mouth. And she panicked. She didn't know what to do. So she took the the rabbit inside, gave it a bath, blow-dried it to its original fluffiness, combed it until that rabbit was looking good, and then she snuck into her neighbor's yard and propped the rabbit back up in its cage and ran home. (laughs) An hour later, she heard screams coming from next door. She ran over. She asked her neighbor, what's going on? And her neighbor cried, our rabbit, our rabbit, He died two weeks ago, we buried him, and now he's back. (laughs) Uh, It's a great story. And I share that story to illustrate a point. And, uh, you know, it's that uh, they understood something that we understand, and we understand something that people who lived 2,000 years ago when the Easter story took place uh, and that is that, that dead rabbits stay dead. They don't come back. Uh, and neither do people, for that matter. Right? It's kind of this universal law that we all get. There's life, and then there's death, and then there's mourning, and then there's moving on. And that's really just it. And people in the ancient world understood this. And I say this because I think sometimes, especially those of us who are a little bit more skeptical in nature, and we really have a hard time getting on board with this whole Easter idea that a man rose from the grave... Um, I think there's a temptation sometimes to think, you know, 2,000 years ago, right, that was a, a simpler time, and they were simpler people, and they, don't, they didn't understand, you know, a lot of the things that we understand now. They didn't have smartphones, and they didn't have Google, you know, they, they didn't have a CNN ticker, you know, cling them in, all the things going on around the world. It's simple people, right, and, and maybe more prone to believing fantastical stories like the Easter story, right? And if we buy this idea, the truth is that is just not a fair or correct assumption to make. 
Um, in fact, a lot of the people in the Easter story and who are alive on the other side of Jesus' death and burial were people very much like you and I, right? Very down-to-earth, level-headed people. A number of them were educated, very intelligent people. And this culture was not one that was given to superstition and mysticism. In fact, this was a, a naturally skeptical culture. It's deeply entrenched uh, in a particular religion. And any idea that some guy got up out of the grave and who was dead and now is alive again would be heretical, right? And it would be vehemently, vehemently opposed. There are a number of skeptics. In fact, a number of Jesus' disciples were highly skeptical and did not believe when the news broke, right? And I'm guessing in a room this side, that size, there's a n- number of us who kind of fall into that camp and are skeptical. And maybe you're here for a number of different reasons. Maybe it's just, it's the family tradition and you know, either you're going to fight about it or you just go along and put up with it for an hour and a half, you know? Or maybe it's just, she's hot and she wants you in church. And it's like, babe, I will follow you anywhere. Yes. Take me to church. Let's do this. Right? Or maybe you lost a bet, you know, or maybe you owe your spouse, and after this morning, she's going to owe you. Whatever the case, right? You're skeptical, and of course you're skeptical. Of course you are. Dead rabbits stay dead. Dead people stay dead, right? People don't get up and walk out of the grave. We get this, right? And people who lived 2,000 years ago, they got this, which creates a bit of a problem for those of us who are skeptics, because... Those of us who struggle to believe and are a little bit more skeptical in nature, we have to try to explain what happened on the other side of the cross in human history apart from an empty tomb. Right? We have to try to connect the dots and explain how in the world this this movement of Jesus catapulted out of the first century and spread across the world. And as I'm going to share a little bit about this this morning, I just don't know how you do that. Apart from what they claimed happen. Right? For example, just think about this. This morning, uh, we gather with millions, millions all over the world to gather in the name of a first century Jewish carpenter. Right? Who, who never, uh, you know, he never traveled more than about 30 miles from home. Right? His public ministry was only about three years Right? He, he never wrote a book, never started a blog, never hosted a podcast or had his own TV show, who never even gave a speech that was recorded in its entirety. And yet, this morning, we will gather, as we are right now, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, in his name, along with over one-third of the world's population, who, like us, are gathering in spaces like this, singing songs like we are singing in languages you've never even heard of, who committed their life to this Jewish carpenter from the first century. How do we explain that? Right, if I tell you, you know, if I bring up the name Nero, right, you might know some, a little bit about him, or at least you know who he was, a Roman emperor, right? But you couldn't tell me anything about his life probably, except for maybe if you know anything about Nero, that he killed a bunch of Christians and fed them to lions. Right, in other words, Nero, this great Roman emperor, has become a footnote in the story of Christianity. How in the world did that happen? Right? Or if I bring up the name Caesar Augustus, who was the first Roman emperor, right? who, who, who initiated all kinds of reforms, all of the Roman Empire, but you couldn't tell me one of them. Right? In fact, if you are, unless you're a historian or, or that's your major, 
you probably couldn't tell me anything about his life, and yet every Christmas, his name is read in tens of thousands of churches all over the world because his name is mentioned in the Christmas story. Right? In other words, Caesar Augustus has become a footnote in the birth story of a first century Jewish carpenter. How, how in the world did that happen? How do we explain that? I don't know if you know this, but for a few hundred years after Jesus stepped off the scene, we didn't have a Bible. Not as we know it now. There's no New Testament. Right? What you had was these different accounts that were written, a number of them eyewitnesses, others who, who lived during that time, and they wrote about it. And these things were floating, these first century documents all over the place. And you were lucky to run into somebody who had a John, and you had a Luke, and you could compare notes and copy it or trade. Right? But they were just floating all over the place. So you didn't have like, church services like we had church services. And you didn't have Bible studies like we have Bible studies. There was no comprehensive body of Scripture. You just had these floating letters. Like, how in the world did the church survive that? How in the world did the church survive Rome, who wanted to squash them out? And Judaism, who thought of Christianity as just kind of like this spin-off cult, not to be taken too seriously. And when they actually joined together to try to stomp out this thing called the way, and now, right, there is no Roman Empire, and now there's far more Christians than Jews, how in the world do we explain this? Right, see, so if, if you don't believe that the resurrec- resurrection took place, we have a lot of explaining to try to do. And I just don't think you can do it apart from the resurrection. Right, there's people who actually give their lives to studying you know, how religions are started and how movements get going. And there's a pretty common formula that happens in just about every single instance. And essentially, you have a culture that is postured for a really big change. There's kind of a collective consciousness of really pressing issues that everybody feels that something has to be done. And out of that fold emerges usually a male charismatic leader who puts into words what everybody else is feeling. Right? That's, that's what I think. That's exactly right. And he gathers a crowd and he can lead. Right? And he presses forward these ideas and everybody falls in love with those ideas. And eventually when he dies, right, everybody's married to those ideas and they pick up the torch and they carry them forward. Right? A great example of this is Martin Luther King. Right? And what happened as a result of his life. Right? There was division in the United States, but there was a collective consciousness that this was a pressing issue. And especially in the African-American community, there was this desperate need for change. Everybody felt it. They were going about it in different ways, but it was there. Right? And so Dr. Martin Luther King leaves Boston, moves to the middle of the conflict in Alabama, and begins to speak. Right? And he gives voice to what everybody else is feeling. Right? Something has to be done. Yes, yes, a nation where our children are judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. And people just followed him. Right? And he emerges as charismatic leader, incredible communicator, great leader, and people attached to his ideas. And so when tragedy strikes and his life is taken, what ends up happening is they pick up that idea and they carry it forward. Right? A vision for justice, for racial equality. Right? And we act in a nonviolent way. We take action. Right? And then we see this incredible change happen to our culture. That's what happens. The problem is, problem is, if you try to take that formula and you impose it on the life of Jesus and what happened on the other side of the cross, it does not make sense. It does not fit for a lot of different reasons. And one of the primary reasons it doesn't work is Jesus' message. Because Jesus did not come peddling ideas. He didn't say, believe my ideas. Right? Buy into my values. Here's my philosophy. Here's my religion. Now everybody buy into this. He didn't. The problem with Jesus was his message, and his message was himself. He didn't say, trust my ideas. He said, trust me. 
Or he didn't say, trust in my philosophy. He said, put your trust in me, which is really problematic if you're not going to be around forever. But that was his message. Jesus was the message. Right? And so in his ministry, there's this moment where he's with his disciples, and they're having a conversation about what people are saying, who Jesus is. And he turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Right? And if you remember, Peter turns to him and he says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Right? What Jesus doesn't say in that moment is, whoa, 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 Peter, I'm flattered, but dial it back, you know? Uh, those, are, those are fighting words. That'll, those words will get, you know, a guy killed around here. All right, thanks for the compliment. Right? No, he says, you're exactly right. In fact, you didn't even come up with that on your own, did you, Peter? God told you that. Right? Jesus was always saying things like this. He was the message right early in his ministry when he's really just stepping onto the scene for the first time. He comes to John the Baptist. Right? John the Baptist's ministry was essentially just preparing the way for Jesus, and he's saying, someone is coming. He's going to be the message. He's going to be the Messiah. Right? Uh, somebody who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's got this whole crew, his whole posse of followers. And he sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? And he would go on to say, you know, Now I must decrease and he must increase. And he encourages his disciples to go follow Jesus. And some of them do exactly that. Right? And Jesus does not step in and stop those disciples and be like, whoa, 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 I don't know what you think you're getting yourself into. We all know John the Baptist. He's a little crazy. He's got some crazy ideas. No, he affirms what John the Baptist has said, and he takes them as his disciples. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this is the problem with Jesus. Is this was, he was the message. Everything was centered on him. Don't trust my ideas. He didn't say that. Trust my ideas. Trust my philosophy. Trust some religion or ideology or whatever. He said, put your hope and trust in me. I am it. Right, there's another moment in his ministry when somebody who he cares deeply about dies. He's have a conversation with uh, one of this gentleman's loved ones and trying to comfort them. And he starts talking about resurrection and she's a little bit confused. She assumes what he means is someday, right? If there's a final resurrection that she would see her loved one again. And Jesus moves to clarify her. And, and he says this. He says, no, you don't get it. He said, I am the resurrection. And I am the life. The one who believes in what? In my ideas, right? In my philosophy, in my values. No, he says, the one who believes in me the one who believes in me will live. It's all about Jesus. And another point, he's in a conversation with Philip, and Philip is struggling to really wrap his, his mind around who Jesus is, and Jesus just puts it out there. And apparently it wasn't the first time. And Jesus says this, he says, I am the way, right? I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In case you don't get it, if you really know me, you know my father as well. And then he says, from now on, from now on, as in like this moment, from now on, you do know him and you've seen him. Right? And Philip is struggling to make the connection. He's like, well, if you would just show us the father, we'd be happy. And Jesus gets flustered. And he says, do you, do you, don't you know, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, putting his cards on the table, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus' message was Jesus. Put your faith and trust in me, the Lamb of God, 
the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection and the life. Right? And this is really, really important for those of you who might be in that skeptical camp or maybe you're considering Christianity for the first time, right? or maybe you've just been gone for a long time and you're kind of coming back and reconsidering this. You've, you've got to realize that Jesus and his followers, at no point in time did they communicate that what, what Jesus came to do was leave us with a collection of insights and teachings and parables that were to be carried on to the next generation. He didn't say that. Jesus was the message. He said, I'm it. Period. Put your faith and trust in me. So when Jesus died, all their hopes died with him. Right? This is why they were so devastated on Friday. All hope was gone. Jesus was it. There was nothing else after Jesus because it wasn't about ideas. It was about Jesus. Right? This is why we find them, even before Jesus has died, they're running for the hills. They all bailed, terrified for their lives. Because right? there's nothing. Jesus was gone. There was no hope. The message is being murdered. Right? I love the way that Andy Stanley puts it. He said this. He said, there were no Christians at the cross. Right? There were no Jesus followers after the crucifixion. Right? Because messiahs don't die. And that's exactly what Jesus claimed to be. Right? The Son of God doesn't just get knocked off. But Jesus said he was the Son of God, and then he got knocked off. Right? The resurrection and the life can't be crucified. And then the guy who kept saying that he was the resurrection and the life got crucified. Right? And so the million-dollar question for us is, how in the world, how in the world, 2,000 years later, on the other side of the world, do we join with one, over one-third of the world's population to gather in the name of the guy whose movement died when he died? The guy who was the message gets crucified. How in the world do we explain that? Right? The only way I know how to explain that is that what we gather to celebrate on Easter actually happened. And this is how it went down in John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Right? Jesus has been crucified. Two guys had some money. They bought back Jesus' body. And they had to hurry to bury him because Sabbath was coming. And Mary and some other women, they go to the tomb, probably because they figure if two guys did the job, it needs to be redone. And so they do. <laughs> they went to the tomb. And, and by the way, I should also say this. It is nothing short of breathtaking that the first witnesses on the scene, the first witnesses of the resurrection, were women. And I, I know if you've been around Mosaic, you've heard me say this a number of times, but it's worth repeating again on Easter. And that is that at this point in history... Right? Women were not valued like they are now or even as they should be. Right? They, were, they were a little bit above cattle. They were oftentimes considered to be property. Right? They generally couldn't work outside the home. Um, they generally weren't educated, didn't have that opportunity. Um, they couldn't even testify in court because their word was not considered legitimate. Right? And so when they're writing this, this document, if this is just a group of guys and this is a piece of pro- propaganda to t- try to further some religious thing for whatever their motives might be, they would, have, they would have edited this out. Because the very first witnesses would have kind of debunked the story. Immediately, this would have been a sticky point for everybody in this culture because women weren't even allowed to testify in court. Why in the world would they be included as the first witnesses unless they actually were the first witnesses? Right, and I love that that's, that's the case because, I mean, part of it too is like, right, in the kingdom of God, right, uh, wrongs are made right. 
right? And those who are mistreated and undervalued are given the highest place of honor, which I think is part of the reason why women were such an important part of Jesus's ministry and why they were the first witnesses. And I could go on forever. I'm going to rant, but let's stop now. Um, but anyway, that's what's going on. They're there. And they get there. Mary Magdalene sees that the stone has been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple who are hiding, terrified for their lives at this point. And the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and that's John. He's referring to himself in the third person as the one Jesus loved. He's very humble, that John. And, and, and she said this. She said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Right? Notice that the first reaction was not, the tomb is empty. He's risen. Let's go find him. Let's party. He's alive. Right? Nobody was expecting that. Nobody thought that. Because right? they understood what we understand. Dead people don't come back. They stay dead. Right? They, they, were, they were skeptical. In fact, Luke, Luke tells us what the, the men's response to the women was. He said this. He said, they didn't the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Right? Of course they did. Right? You, you've got the wrong tomb. Are you serious? Have you been drinking this morning? Right? This is why we don't allow you to testify in court. You're crazy. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. So verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And I love that detail is in there because John is the one writing this. He's like, I beat you. We got to include this. It's going to be there. It's going to be there forever. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight to the tomb. And he saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. And finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. And I love this. He saw and he believed. This guy's been following Jesus around for the better part of three years. Listening in, watching, taking it all in. And the thing that finally caused him to believe, it, it wasn't sermon. You know, it wasn't Jesus's ideas. And it wasn't the miracles and it wasn't the crucifixion. It was an empty tomb. And then the most amazing thing happens. And all of a sudden we find Jesus's followers who have scattered. Some of them are trying to reincorporate back into life as usual. They're starting to fish again. They're just hoping they don't get dragged into this Jesus business and, and lose their lives or be imprisoned. They're all over the place. And then all of a sudden, they re-engage, and boy, do they re-engage. All of a sudden, like, you can't get them to shut up. You can't flog them enough. You can't torture them enough. You can't imprison them enough. They just keep talking about the risen Jesus. Why, why is that? I can tell you what the text says. I mean, the text says that just because Jesus, after this, showed up and spent time with a lot of them. Mary Magdalene, um, the Apostle Paul, the disciples. At one point, we're told he actually was with a crowd of 500 people. And all of a sudden, these people who are just terrified and afraid and in hiding pour into the streets. And all of a sudden, they are all in and you can't stop them. Right? They just keep going on and on and on. And, and they are so bold with their message. Right? The book of, that, of Acts tells us what happens next. And they pour into the streets of Jerusalem where, by the way, this had all taken place. And their message was essentially four parts. Uh, you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Now say you're sorry. Right? 
And they like would tell that to everybody. You couldn't, you could not stop that. At one point, Peter and John in Acts 3 are brought before the authorities and their lives are hanging the, bit, the balance. And this, by the way, is Peter who just got done, right, a couple months later, cursing out, like cursing God and cussing out a teenage girl because she outed him as a Jesus follower to a small group of people, right? Coward. Like, that was the legacy on the other side of the cross for him. Denies Jesus three times, as Jesus said. And all of a sudden, they're, they're dragged before the, the authorities. Their lives are hanging in the balance. And this is, this is Peter's response. This is what he says. Right? And he says this, by the way, like basically pointing his finger at Caiaphas. He says, you are guilty of killing the Son of God. But guess what? He's not dead. He's alive. And you know what? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. And every single time they said that, they got beaten and thrown into prison, and their lives of them and their loved ones were threatened. Right? It would be, and they just would, would not shut up. And it would be easier to, to, to understand if every time like, they talked about them, they got a book deal or a promotion, or they landed an interview with Ellen DeGeneres or something like that. But instead, they're getting flogged and they're getting imprisoned. And out of nowhere, they are fearless. What, how, do we, how do we explain that? Right, this, by the way, this is all going on in the city where this just took place. So they're walking around the city where Jesus just died a couple months ago, and they're saying, yeah, Jesus, you know, he was killed right here, and we buried him a few hundred yards right over there. He's alive. Right, this is a time, I mean, this would have been the easiest claim in the world to debunk. I mean, all you have to do is show, up, show a body, Right? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I submit to you Exhibit A. Jesus, everybody, everybody, Jesus, you remember him. He's very much dead. You can see that for yourselves. How, how hard is it to prove that somebody's still dead? Right? Or if you can't produce a body, just get one of the witnesses to admit we made it up. Right? We thought it would be a cool idea. Thought it might be a unique career move. You know, I always wanted to make bad t-shirts and bad music. Right? So we made it up. But they didn't. Right? They couldn't. And apparently they were pretty, they were pretty convincing. Because this thing grew really, really fast. Right? And we're told shortly that there were, the numbers had grown to 5,000 followers. That's just talking about the men. That's not even the women and children. In the city where this just took place. What? How in the world do you do that? Right? And apparently they were very convincing because it continued. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but just 15 years after we're told that there were multiple churches. His, this is extra biblical. Multiple churches in Rome. Right? Rome is 1,800 miles away by ship if you take the coast. If you walk, it takes you a lifetime. Fifteen years later, eyewitnesses are still walking around everywhere. And there's multiple churches in Rome. Right? In fact, uh, and, and by the way, Romans did not like Jews at all. And all of a sudden, there's, there's multiple churches of Roman Christians who are saying, we believe. We believe. We believe. Right, just 30-some years after the resurrection, uh, when Nero was emperor, if those of you are familiar with history, if you remember, he burnt Rome to the ground. You remember who he blamed? Blamed the Christians. Why in the world, how in the world could he do this? Because they had grown to be such an entity, they were recognizable. He blamed it on them. In fact, depending on what sources you read, by this time, 30, just 30 years later, there are between thirty and 50,000 Christians just in Rome. It's, it's spread from this tiny little hub to Rome, not Judea, Samaria, Egypt, in Rome of all places. 
It's absolutely amazing. The witnesses are walking the streets, friends. Right, if you think I'm making it up, go talk to him. Go talk to her. They were there. Peter's right over there. Paul's in jail right over there. Go ask any of them. They can vouch. We ate with him. We saw him. We put our fingers in his side. Jesus is alive. And you can't do anything to stop me from saying it. Right, and we know this because in the lifetime of Peter and Paul, these witnesses were all still alive. Tens of thousands of Roman citizens, they swore their allegiance to Jesus and they lost their lives as a result of what they proclaimed to have seen and what they proclaimed to believe. History tells us that Nero killed a lot of them and he would cover Christians with animal skins and feed them to wild animals. Uh, One of his favorite things was staking Christians up in his gardens and he would cover them in oil and use them as human torches on his property. Tens of thousands of Roman Christians lost their life and all they had to do was swear allegiance to Nero and say, Nero is king. And they would not do it. Right? And they would say, no, 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 my king, my king, his kingdom is not of this world. My king is Jesus. And I think they heard that and thought, what? Jesus, the first century Jewish carpenter, the guy we murdered a long time ago? And they would go willingly. Again, this is not a hundred years later. This is not with time for this to become folklore and legend and myth. Right? The eyewitnesses are still alive. You see, I believe that the resurrection happened not because I'm desperate to believe something. For my own part, I believe the resurrection happened because the evidence is overwhelming. Because I don't think history makes sense otherwise without an empty tomb and a resurrected Jesus who shows up. I believe it because the scriptural evidence that we have is overwhelming. You know, I don't know if you know this, but you can't really say, like, I just don't believe the Bible. Because the Bible's not a book, right? It's a collection of writings, different first century documents in the New Testament that we have that survived the first century, right? We've got nine accounts from nine different authors that Jesus is alive, seven of them eyewitnesses. And these documents floated around for a number of years, and then eventually they were, they were brought together, and that's what we have in the New Testament, right? And so it lacks intellectual integrity just to say, I, I don't believe the Bible. What you have to say is, I don't believe that those nine accounts are legitimate, I believe that those seven eyewitnesses were lying and that they took that lie to the grave. And a number of them, that grave came precisely because of what they said they saw. Right? It's, that takes faith as well, if you ask me. Right? The evidence is, is pretty incredible. I, I believe it because, you know, Matthew wrote about it and believed it. And Mark wrote about it and believed it. And Luke did and John did, right? And Peter did, and Paul did, and James did, who was the brother of Jesus, right? And I don't know what it would take for your brother to convince you that he was the resurrected son of God, but neither of my brothers are going to be able to do that, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you're raised from the dead. That's a good start, but I'm still not buying it, you know? And we're told, like, James, he didn't believe at first. He was skeptical like a lot of us. <laughs> He's not believing Jesus, 
is the Son of God. And then something changed on the other side of the cross and on the other side of an empty tomb. And he believed it. And so did the author of Hebrews and Jude. It's it's incredible. And and I don't don't think you can do, if you step away from the Bible even and just look at human history, I don't know that you can do enough sociological and historical gymnastics to make the dots connect. The only way I know how to understand it is that what went down on Easter is what we read about. That Jesus is not somebody who lived, but that Jesus is somebody who lives. And I know, you're right, dead rabbits don't come back. And neither do dead men. Unless that man is more than a man. Right? Unless that man is precisely who he said he was and is. And if he is, it's really good news. Because what that means is Jesus is Lord. It means that death is not final. It means that God is exceedingly good because in Jesus we get to see God as he really is. And it also means that everything that Jesus said is true. That he is the way and the truth and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him but that all who come to him find life and grace and forgiveness in the arms of the Father. Right, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, right on Easter, we, we celebrate that by God's grace, the gate has been swung wide open in Jesus on Easter. Right, and that all are invited to dine at the table of the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So we're going to do something as we close this morning as a church. And we're going to take communion. And we're going to sing. And I hope that today you party like it's 1999. <laughs> I heard it was a good year. I don't know. Somebody sang about it. But um, what we're going to do is, is take communion. And we've got different spots uh, set up. And so if you're in the front, if you're in this section, we've got you covered right there where Brian is. If you're in this section up front, got you covered right there. And then if you're in the back section, we actually have communion set up behind you. And just so you know, at Mosaic, we don't play goalie when it comes to communion. Um, We're not going to block you from participating. Uh, You don't have to be a member of our church. We don't have membership. If you want to be a member, high five, you're in. All right, that's how it works. But, and so you're invited, but I do want you to understand what you're participating in this morning as you do. Right? And that is, is you're proclaiming when you take that bread and you dip it in the wine and you eat of it, that I am choosing to believe that Jesus is alive. Right? That the bread is symbolic of his body that was broken, not just because the Roman Empire could be cruel at times, but because the Son of God marched there willingly to lay down his life for my sin and for yours, right? And that wine or grape juice is, is representative of the blood that was spilled on your behalf and my behalf so that we could be made right with God once and for all. On Easter, we celebrate that it is finished and you're invited. So Mosaic, if you would, we're, if you would go ahead and stand, we're gonna close by singing some very appropriate lyrics together and taking communion. <laughs>